man. So when your back is against the wall, what's your first response? Well, in the story of Jack and the Beanstalk, if you aren't already familiar with the story, a boy by the name of Jack, he lived with his mom. They were poor, right? So one day, Jack's mom told him to go and sell their only cow for money. So Jack went, and finally a man offered to buy the cow. But the catch was the man didn't have any money. So the man offered Jack five magical beans. And Jack did what any teenage boy who watches too many cartoons would do, right? He took the five magical beans. His mom was upset, and you know, I don't blame her. So, so Jack threw the beans outside. He went to bed, and he woke up one day, and he saw the, the, the beanstalk had grew out the ground, and it was a giant beanstalk, and it grew overnight. So Jack, he climbed the beanstalk to find out there was a giant who wanted to eat him alive. And to make a long story short, Jack climbed up and down the beanstalk three different times, and every time he saw the giant, he ran and hid until the giant fell asleep. And each time the giant fell asleep, Jack took something magical back home. Now, the last thing Jack took was a magical harp. Well, this particular magical harp, it actually spoke. So it cried, Master, help, when Jack tried to steal it. And so this woke the giant up, and the giant chased Jack down the beanstalk. And Jack, with his quick thinking, he grabbed the axe, and he chopped the beanstalk down, and the giant died. In this story, Jack faced two trials. Well, one, him and his mom were poor. So Jack's answer for that was to steal from the giant. <laughs> and the second trial was the giant. And Jack's response to the giant was to run and hide until the giant went to sleep. That's how Jack handled trials. But my question to you today is how do you handle trials? As Christians, our response to trials will be different than those who aren't. Our response to trials should be prayer. Amen? Amen. Today, we will look to a servant's prayer. We'll be in the first chapter of Nehemiah. If you look at all the books in the Old Testament, all 39 books, you can divide, you can divide them and place them into five different categories. Category number one will be the books concerning the law, which are the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The second category will be the historical books, which starts with Joshua and ends with Esther. And the book we will be in today, Nehemiah, is right before Esther. And the other three categories are, one, uh, the third one is poetry, which is Job to Ecclesiastes. And then there's uh, the major prophets, which includes Isaiah through Daniel. And then there's the minor prophets from Hosea to Malachi. Uh, but as we kind of hone in on the historical part of the Old Testament, we see the history of Israel. The Nehemiah was written about 445 to about 420 B.C. Now, around 537 B.C., Israel had been released from Babylonian captivity, and that fulfilled Jeremiah's prophecy about Judah being enslaved by Babylon for 70 years. So the book of Nehemiah was written about 117 years after Judah had been set free. And we really don't have too much knowledge of who Nehemiah is other than that he was a former exile. We see that back in the book of Ezra, chapter 2. And Nehemiah's dad, Hekeliah, isn't mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. So this is all we have on them. And, and most of the book, right, is written in first person. So from that, we can safely assume that Nehemiah is the author. 
you know, back in biblical times, names meant something. Nehemiah means Yahweh comforts, which was very much needed at that time. And believe it or not, Nehemiah was actually a common name back then. And the book begins with a date. The month is Kislev, which is the ninth month of the biblical calendar year. And Kislev is the Babylonian name for that month. And it's the 20th year under King Artaxerxes. And then you'll see the word Susa there in the uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. And it's the capital of the Persian Empire. And that's what citadel means. Or if you have the King James Version, it'll say palace. I think a better translation from the Greek would be capital. It's kind of like the capital of Maryland, right, which is Annapolis. And this is currently where Nehemiah is by God's providence. And while being there, he receives bad news. He finds out that some of the Jews who had escaped captivity are in Jerusalem, but they are in great distress. While the, wild, while the walls are broken down, the gates have been burned down as well. So it's in the same condition that Nebuchadnezzar left it when they took God's people captive. Uh, they were in great distress, or you could say they were suffering. Not only was Jerusalem in terrible condition, right, but they were in an emotionally and mentally bad condition as well. They, be, they had been in captivity for 70 years. And when they are finally released, they return to a city without any leaders who would take the initiative to rebuild the city, right? And then finally, Ezra, he, he leads them to start this process. And we read, we read about it in Ezra chapter 4, verse 12. It reads, let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are rebuilding this rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. They started, right, but they haven't finished. So Hanani, who was in captivity with Nehemiah and who was most likely Nehemiah's brother, he cared so much about Jerusalem that instead of moping around and feeling hopeless, he most likely prayed to God and remembered that he had a friend who was in a great position to be of help a brother that cared about Jerusalem just as much as he did. And now that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. I'll read the entire chapter, but I'll give you guys a moment to get there. Listen to the reading of God's word. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors are left from the captivity in the province and are there in great distress and reproach. The walls of Jerusalem are also broken down and its gates are burnt down with fire. So it was then when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O oh, great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant in mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, 
day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which have sinned against you. Both my our father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast far off to the furthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was a cupbearer. Here's what I believe the main point of our text is today. And that's when trials arise, you pray. When trials arise, you pray. So when trials arise, what's your first response? When you receive bad news, what's the first thing that you normally do? Are you tempted to try to solve the issue without seeking help from God? Do you think that sometimes you don't need God? Saints, whenever we attempt to solve a problem without prayer, we are in a sense pointing a finger at God and telling him, I don't need you. And that's called pride. Saints, God hates pride. Listen to what scripture says about pride. Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. Saints, whenever we say with our actions that we got this right and we don't need God's help, then pride comes. And then comes shame. But praying to God, knowing that only he can change our circumstances, that shows humility. And what we gather from Proverbs 11:2, those who are humble are wise. Proverbs 16:5, everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, and though they join forces, none will go unpunished. So far, we've read that when trials arise, right, and we don't turn to God first, that's pride. And then comes shame. And then just from Proverbs 16:5, it takes it even a step further. Every prideful heart is an abomination to the Lord. A synonym for abomination could be hatred. It means God hates pride. It's abomination to him. And you know, a lot of us Christians are we're quick to call homosexuality an abomination. And we aren't wrong because it is. It is a sin, and if you are involved in it, you must repent or you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But you see, homosexuality isn't the only abomination to God. A prideful heart is also an abomination to God. Saints, we can't be one-sided about what Scripture calls out. We must call it all out, even if it convicts you. So if you are one who, when trials arise, you try to solve the problem on your own, recognize first that's the start of a prideful heart. And if it continues without repentance, you now have a prideful heart. And, and our Lord calls that an abomination. Take advantage of the privilege to go to God in prayer and repent of that sin of pride. Well, let's look at what Nehemiah does when trials arise. Verse 4, 
So it was then when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So the first thing we have to tackle is Nehemiah, a man of God, he sat down and wept. Nehemiah, you did what? Men aren't supposed to cry, right? That's what we're taught and indoctrinated with, right? You see, crying is considered weakness, specifically for men. And we are supposed to be emotionless people with the exception of anger, right? And that's wrong. Now, I'm not advocating for men to be crybabies, right? And my son now, who was one, he cries a lot. And I'm still trying to teach him that, you know, everything doesn't warrant crying. You got to save the tears for later on. And, and some reasons, acceptable reasons to cry, right, would be the loss of a loved one, right? To, to hear of a loved one who was injured, right? And another reason is when God reveals to you how much he hates your sin. I remember crying, right, praying to God, confessing my sins, and immediately I broke out in tears because I remembered that God's word specifically addressed how much he hated the sin that I committed. And I don't care how tough you are, right? If you are in Christ and you confess your sins to God and he gives you an understanding of how much he hates it, you cry like a baby too. But Nehemiah is crying because he was deeply hurt about the condition of God's people. Do you hurt over the condition of God's people? How did you feel when you heard about the horrible sex abuse issues within the SBC? Your immediate response should have been a broken heart like Nehemiah, followed with a sorrow-filled prayer like his. So Nehemiah learns of the condition of his people, and he mourned and wept for days. Here we see that a godly leader must be strong enough to weep over the condition of his people. Uh, him weeping showed how much he cared about his people. It showed that he wasn't disconnected. You know, being a pastor isn't like a job where you can clock in and clock out and forget everybody when you leave, right? No. You are always ready to serve the flock but to pray for them, to counsel them, and to walk them through trials and to give them wisdom when they need it. And, you know, even if you aren't a pastor, right, you're called to love others, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. A wise man once said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And we move on to Nehemiah's prayer in verse 5. Nehemiah starts off with, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. But Nehemiah starts off his petition to God with praise. But notice how he addresses God, both at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5, as the God of heaven. But Nehemiah understands that God is not only the creator of earth, but he's the creator of the heavens as well, right? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, the heavens belong to God because he created it. Psalm 115, 16. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's. Uh, then Nehemiah says, oh, great and awesome God. He's quoting back from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 21, where Moses addresses God as the great and awesome God. And so far we see that leaders must, be, must lead by prayer and, and they must
must be diligent in studying God's word. And we just saw through the first verse of his prayer that he was familiar with, familiar with Genesis 1.1 and Deuteronomy 7.21. So saints, while prayer is important, it must be paired with reading God's word. And we'll see that more in the next part of our verse. Nehemiah goes on to say in the rest of verse 5, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. If you don't read God's word, you'll be unfamiliar with his promises. And if you're unfamiliar with God's promises, you miss out on seeing in scripture how time after time again, God always keeps his promises. Numbers 23 verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie. God isn't like a crooked politician that only makes promises so that he can get into office, right? And then once they do, these promises turn into rumors. You know, like the student loan's been paid off, right? I'm still waiting. <laughs> but no, God always keeps his promises. You may hear me say that every sermon, and that's okay. I'll keep saying it until it's no longer true, which will be never. And our God is merciful to those who love him and to those who keep his commandments. Christians who love God, right? We aren't habitual liars. We shouldn't be sexual and moral. And we don't have prideful hearts, but we obey God's word. Verse 6, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel of your servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel. We have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. You heard that first part? Please let your ear be attentive. As Nehemiah prays, keep in mind that his face is covered with tears. His heart is broken over the condition of God's people. And that led him to prayer. Folks, it's okay to go to the Lord with a face full of tears. Half of the Psalms are filled with cries to the Lord for help. Psalm 143, hear my prayer, O Lord. As Christians, that's all we want, right? We just want God to hear our cries for help. And thankfully, we know that God hears our cries for help. Psalm 18, 6, in my distress, I called upon the Lord, and I cried out to my God, and he heard my voice from his temple. Did you hear that? And he heard my voice. Saints, it's a privilege for God to hear our prayers. And that should bring us joy. His ears are always open for his children. But John 9.31 says that God does not hear sinners. And that's what you used to be before Christ. But now you are in Christ and you worship him, he hears you. Nehemiah goes on to say, your eyes open. Uh, Nehemiah acknowledges that God sees all that's happening. Right? He knows that God sees all this happening, and he's still asking him to have mercy on his people. And he goes on to say, that you may hear your servant. This is one reason why I titled this sermon a servant's prayer. In our text alone, Nehemiah calls himself and his brothers and sisters servants of God eight times in just 11 verses. That's what you are no matter what your status is. If you are a Christian, then you are a servant. And if you are not a servant of Christ, then you are not a Christian. Another thing to notice from Nehemiah's prayer is that we are to be persistent in prayer. 
See that right in the middle of verse 6 where Nehemiah says, I pray before you now, day and night. We should be persistent like the widow in Luke 18. Right? In that parable, the widow wanted justice from her adversary. Now, the specifics were left out because it's just a parable. Now, this widow went to a judge to get justice. And we can assume that the judge said no. But that didn't stop this widow. She probably went to his courtroom every single day, and it got so bad, in verse 4 and 5, the judge said, though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. So saints, if an unjust, unloving judge would grant the request of a woman he has no regard for, how much more? How much more would a God whose love endures forever do for his children? You know, saints, I pray for the salvation of my son every single day. And I will continue to pray because our Lord and Savior says, pray and do not lose heart. So I'll tell you what God told me through his word. Saints, pray and do not lose heart. And if you know, you've heard me preach before, you knew it was coming. Look to your neighbor and say, pray and do not lose heart. Amen. Amen. Also, Nehemiah most likely spent four months praying to God over and over and over again before he saw any results. Another thing to remember is God is not on our time. <laughs> In the rest of verse 6, we see an essential element to the Christian walk. And it's something that I believe a lot of people place very little emphasis on. And that's confession. Well, maybe, right, when you understood that Jesus died for your sins, and when he said, it is finished, you thought that you no longer needed to confess your sins, right? They're forgiven. But saints, there are a couple of things wrong with that. One, even though you are in Christ and you've been redeemed by Christ's blood, you and I, we still sin. And we are commanded to put our sin to death. Or you could say wage war with our sin. And one way you can wage war with your sin is by confessing your sins to God. And God commands us to confess our sins. James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Uh, confession should be a normal part of our prayer life. Uh, we aren't praying to God for forgiveness because we already have that in Christ, but we are confessing our sins because we want to wage war on them. And we ask the God of heaven to help us repent of our sins. Uh, have you ever wondered uh, why we have a prayer of confession during our services every Sunday morning? It's because we believe the corporate prayer of confession is absolutely necessary when the saints gather to worship the Lord. We all are one big family through Jesus who purchased us with his blood. And that's why all throughout scripture we're called the body. That there's a close unity with us that's formed to others. It invites you to examine your hearts and motivates you to confess your sins to the Lord more regularly. You know, out of all our prayers, uh, the prayer of praise, the prayer of thanksgiving, and the prayer of supplication, I'll say, out of all those prayers, they're somewhat natural for the Christian. It's common for us to bless our food before we eat, right? And in that prayer, you're praising God, right? 
and you're, you're thanking him for the food. And as for supplication, we always need something, right? <laughs> but I'll ask you, how often do you confess your sins to the Lord in prayer? How often? Listen to this quote from Laramie Minga. He's the director of the, the G3 ministry, the, the, the media portion of it. He writes, a corporate confession invites believers to examine their hearts, genuinely confess sin, and seek forgiveness both individually and as a community. Through this practice, believers experience the transformative power of God's forgiveness leading to genuine repentance and growth in their relationship with him. Confession allows us to confront the areas in our life that hinder our spiritual growth and align ourselves with God's purposes, wherein he works to shape us into Christ-likeness. I end quote. Notice, he said, the prayer of confession allows us to confront the areas that are hindering our spiritual growth. Uh, did you know that holding on to secret sins can hinder your growth in the Lord? Saints, we can't hide our sins from God, right? Because he sees all. He saw what you did. Confess your sins to the Lord regularly. I charge every husband here to regularly lead a prayer of confession with your family. And let's all hold each other accountable, right? Nehemiah understands that their sin is the reason why their people were in captivity for 70 years. And he doesn't say, God, we didn't deserve that. But instead, God, we deserve every bit of it. Your punishment was just because we sinned against you. And verse 7 goes more into detail of the sins of the people. Nehemiah begins the verse with the word we. He doesn't just shift the blame to his people. No, he shares the blame with them. A great leader understands that when their team fails, they fail too. And Nehemiah knows that. Nehemiah says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. And every time a person sins, they too have acted very corruptly against God. Israel was warned time after time again. Listen to the warning back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 58 and 59. It reads, if you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that I've written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues, and serious and prolonged sicknesses. And in verse 64, we see a clearer picture of if they continue to disobey God, it'll lead to exile. Verse 64 reads, then the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. God was patient because throughout the entire book of Judges, there was nothing but Israel being unfaithful with bad leaders. Yet God was slow to anger. Thankfully, right, God's not a hothead like us. <laughs> God was slow to anger with us too. Because we, too, at one point of time, were all enemies of God. You see, we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our sins. We didn't want anything to do with him. And while we were in that state, God was patient and gracious because while we were enemies of him, he still loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. You know, one of our brothers here, by the name of Jim, right, whenever he's asked how he's doing, 
he always gives you the same response. And that's better than I deserve. No matter what his circumstances are, health, whatever it may be, he continues to say, I am doing better than I deserve. See, saints, Jim understands that he is a sinner saved by grace, that he doesn't deserve salvation, and whatever trials he faces in life are still much better than he deserved. Saints, let's have Jim's mindset. Because God, too, was patient with us in our sin, like he was with Israel, right? But that patience didn't last forever. Nehemiah says they have not kept the commandments, the statutes, or the ordinances. Normally, when you see statutes, commandments, and ordinances together, it's referring back to the Mosaic law, which is why verse 7 ends with, which you commanded your servant Moses. The Mosaic law had included 613 laws. Just imagine, just imagine with me here, trying to keep 613 laws, right? And we barely can follow the speed limit. On my way here, one of our members sped past me. I won't say any names. <laughs> and they had the moral laws, civil and ceremonial laws, and they had to keep them all. In verses 8 and 9, Nehemiah says, Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you will cast off to the furthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Nehemiah isn't reminding God as he forgot. But Nehemiah knows that God keeps his promises. So in him pleading with God, Nehemiah goes to the only reliable resource that he can think of, and that's God's word. While God did tell Israel, if you fail to keep my commandments, there will be consequences, God also provided a remedy a remedy filled with grace because Israel, for Israel to disobey a perfectly just God, they were deserve, deserving of death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what Israel deserved. But even with a punishment, God still sprinkles some grace. And he tells them that if they return to being obedient to his word, then he will gather them and bring them back to the place he has chosen for them. Nehemiah's confidence in this prayer rests on the assurance of the covenant-keeping God. In verse 9, what Nehemiah says, if you return to me, it implies repentance. Now, while confession is extremely important in the Christian life, it's useless if it does not lead to repentance. Repentance is the mark of a true Christian. If a person is a Christian, that means the Holy Spirit is inside of them. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 16, Paul, Paul says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? So if the Holy Spirit is inside of us, he will first convict us of our sin. And that conviction leads to confession. And then that confession lands on repentance. Our lives must be marked by repentance from sin. And then verse 10, when Nehemiah says, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand, he's referring back to Exodus, where God delivered his people from the hands of the Egyptians. That seemed like in that moment that there was no light at the end of the tunnel. But God, by his strong hand, he led his people out of Egypt by splitting the Red Sea. But Nehemiah is saying, God, I know you can deliver us from our current 
situation because you've done it before. And if you've done it before, you can do it again. You can rebuild our defenses and help your people. There's no trial that you can't handle, God. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe this? Do you believe that there's no trial that God can't handle? Saints, trust me. If God delivered the Hebrews from the Egyptians, split the Red Sea, placed plagues on the Egyptians, gave Israel the land of Canaan, and redeemed you from your sins, then he can handle whatever trial you may be facing today. All you have to do is be like Nehemiah and take us to the Lord in prayer. Interestingly enough, in Ezra 4.21, King Artaxerxes ordered the work in Jerusalem to cease. Nehemiah knew that God who moves mountains could move this trial as well. Again, a great leader is a leader who prays. It's one who understands that even though they are the leader, they must depend on God to properly lead his people. And Nehemiah ends his prayer with verse 11. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the servant, the prayer of your servant, and to the prayers of your servants who desire to fear your name, and let your servant prosper this day. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah repeats, please let your ear be attentive, from verse 6. And as I mentioned earlier, this isn't a prayer filled with joy. This is a prayer from a man whose face is filled with tears and sorrow. Oh, the carefulest people again led him here, and now just imagine Nehemiah's face filled with tears, crying out to the Lord to hear my voice. And I wonder, have you ever cried out to the Lord like this before? Have you ever faced a trial and felt like God wasn't hearing your prayers, right? And saints, it's, if you are in Christ, rather, God hears your prayers. We spoke about that earlier. James says that the prayers of the righteous avails much. So prayer works. Prayer is the offense to the Christian life. In Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul tells us about the whole armor of God, every piece of equipment is for defense. We see the bed of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes for the readiness given by the gospel of peace, and the shield of faith and the helmet of our salvation. But the last two things Paul lists are for our offense. And that's the sword, which is God's word, and prayer. Saints, when times get rough and you tell non-believers that you have to pray about it, they may view that as a weak response. Little do they know we're praying to the lion of the tribe of Judah. Don't be discouraged about the response of others. Nehemiah says, God, please hear my prayer and the prayers of your people who desire to fear your name. Well, what does it mean to fear God? It doesn't mean a terrifying fear, right? To fear God means to have a reverence for him, and that reverence should impact the way we live our lives, including in that, right, it's respecting him, obeying his word, and as for Israel, to obey his commandments, and submitting to his discipline, and worshiping him in all circumstances. So do you fear the Lord? Fearing the Lord is much more than to come to church every week. It has to do with every part of our lives. And Nehemiah goes on to say, let your servant prosper this day. Nehemiah is asking God for the victory. He doesn't view the victory as a pocket filled with money like some megachurches today teach, right? No. But God, delivering his people from trials, is the only victory he seeks. 
the only prayer that God answers are those that are in accordance with his will. Praying for others is in accordance with his will. Nehemiah goes on to say, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah, right before he goes to the king and asks them to go to Jerusalem, asks the king to go to Jerusalem and finish rebuilding it, he first takes it up with the Lord. He asks God to grant him mercy in the sight of the king, that the king may grant his request. There's an application here for us saints. And it's before you have a big decision, before you make the big decision, rather, should I say, or important conversations, we will be wise to first go to the Lord in prayer. Before you talk to your boss about promotion, right, pray to the Lord for wisdom, that you may ask for it in a wise and loving way. And before you confront your spouse about an issue, pray to the Lord for wisdom. Prayer is absolutely necessary in the life of a Christian. It's the foundation to every believer's life, and without it, you forfeit a privilege that was given to you through Christ's atoning work on the cross. Our text ends with, for I was the king's cupbearer. In those times, being a cupbearer was a really important job, believe it or not. <laughs> it was a high-ranking job, and their job was to serve wine to everyone at the royal table. And you could imagine there would be attempts to poison the king through food and drinks, right? And anyone that I had to watch over my food, I trusted with my life, and I'm pretty sure this was the case. Now, sometimes the cupbearer will even go to the extent of tasting the wine to show the king that it's safe to drink before he drunk it. And back in Genesis, when Pharaoh couldn't find anyone to interpret his dreams, it was the cupbearer who suggested Joseph. And we all know the rest of that story, right? Now, the point that I'm trying to make is that being a cupbearer was an influential and important job. But notice this, right? Nowhere in Nehemiah's prayer did he mention that he was a cupbearer. That's something for us to learn in that too. As I said earlier, when going to the Lord in prayer, we are servants. And you're not going to him as a CEO or a businessman or anything that we would call an important job today. But again, we approach God as servants. Nehemiah shows us the importance of, and all that you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. You may not have the most important job at your company, but if everyone knows that you're a Christian, trust me, they're watching you. And your conduct will speak to Christianity and will also be a determining factor of that promotion you've been looking for. And even though Nehemiah had a great and influential job, he cared more about God's people Right? He gave up his privileges to go help his people rebuild their city. And that showed where his priorities were. Nehemiah was a man who cared about his people. Let's go ahead and close. Today, we examine a servant's prayer. A man that believed that when trials arise, you pray. And the same is true for us today. Nehemiah's prayer is as relevant today as it was then. Prayer is the foundation to every believer's life. Now, this prayer began with him praising God. But Nehemiah's prayer involved tears, but that didn't stop him from praising the Lord. We also saw that confession of sin is essential to the Christian life. We must bring our sins to God in order to wage war with them. Nehemiah also, while praying, was reminded of God's faithfulness in the past how he remembered God delivered the Hebrews from the Egyptians. And you too, when you pray, remember of God's faithfulness in the past. 
knowing that God keeps his promises, keeps us from doubting him. We also look to James 5.16, where James says, the prayers of the righteous man availeth much. Well, here is the evidence. Nehemiah is a righteous man. He goes to the Lord in prayer and pleads for mercy in the favor of the sight of the king. And this prayer was answered. Chapter 2, verse 6 reads, so it pleased the king to send me. The prayer of this righteous man availed much. His prayer was answered. But notice, Nehemiah was a foreshadow of Christ. Nehemiah left his high-ranking job to go be with his people and rebuild Jerusalem. Christ, our Lord and Savior, he left the glory of heaven. He took on flesh, and he satisfied the wrath of God by dying in our place. And he took our sin to make us right with God. Nehemiah's Nehemiah's uh, prayer pointed a finger towards Christ. Saints, will you go to the Lord in prayer this week? Will you confess your sins? Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that we know that is good for teaching, correcting, rebuking in your power and wisdom. Let me just pray, Heavenly Father, that we wouldn't walk away from this sermon um, with prideful hearts. Oh, that Heavenly Father, that we would take everything to you in prayer, knowing that you are the God who answers prayers. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.